0: important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello, and welcome to episode 175 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from Emo.com. Fun fact, it is my birthday today, and selfishly for my birthday, it'd be awesome if you bought a book from my anthology series at anthologyofemo.com. Learn about the series at the site, and the best part, they ship next month. And if you want to support this podcast and already have the book, you can via Patreon at patreon.com slash washedupemo. Any amount gets you into the Discord where we chat about emo all day. Today on the podcast, we welcome Thomas Barnett from Strike Anywhere a legend in the punk scene and someone that I've been following since 1999 when I first heard his band and their brand of political punk from Richmond, Virginia. When Thomas from Strike Anywhere first jumped on the phone with me, he said he was shy and not really a good talker. Well, he was completely wrong and I pretty much just sat back for most of this interview and listened to the master who's been going to shows since the 80s. He talked about learning how to put on shows on the outskirts of Richmond, Virginia, in a barn and spoke passionately about what first bands he saw that shaped his life and his previous band, Inquisition. I did a lot of editing myself on this one. Yes, even the giggles. It was funny, though, listening back to this interview and going, yeah, don't need to hear me there. I was absolutely honored to have someone like Thomas take time to chat about the history of the scene and what shapes it and yourself. We, of course, talk about Emo, do not worry. But as you know, my love of hardcore runs deep, so to hear him talk about Richmond VA, his life now, and the band Strike Anywhere is amazing. The band is still around, and their most recent album, Nightmares of the West, is out now on Pure Noise Records. Definitely go check that out. And as you've heard me preach many times, Emo has a lot of tentacles and a long history. And a big part of that history isn't talked about enough, and it's hardcore and punk and those intersections with Emo. So it was an honor to have Thomas come on to school me on the history, and for him, it is not a phase, it is for life. Lastly, one of my favorite quotes from this episode, and there are many, was about music and DIY. And Thomas said, it's all there, it's all real, before we make the words to describe it. This is episode 175 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Thomas Barnett from Strike Anywhere.
1: I mean, you know, everyone has a different style of what feels authentic and unforced. And, like, you know, there's there's all kinds of levels of shyness and social awkwardness in people involved in punk and hardcore that this particular um, culture uh, allows for that psychology, right? So I'm, like, not a particularly outgoing or like socially confident person but like this art form and culture that i've been a part of for like i don't know three decades um has given me an opportunity to meet so many people and have so many conversations and feel more confident about being a human <laughs> like you know what i mean so that's that's a huge thing like now we don't have that right like because of the pandemic and stuff and it's really brutal like i mean you know yeah everyone has to make an effort everyone has to kind of like reach out to people even if you're not 100% in the mood because there's no way to run into someone. Like that spontaneousness kind of like chills out your insecurities because, hey, we just ran into you on the street or at this park or at this show. Like, we don't have that right now, like you said. So, yeah, I'm, t- I'm acutely aware of, like, the suspension of, like, of many of the social remedies that I've been relying on and maybe a lot of other shy and insecure folk have been relying on. Now those don't exist. So you have to like, yeah, you have to wake up in the morning and like make a commitment to connect with other humans.
0: I wanted to mention quickly that, yes, the website and podcast has emo in the title, but I'm actually an old school hardcore kid. I love your band. I love that you've been around and stayed and just thinking, you know, you kind of, just it was, it was such a breath of fresh air. I mean, I just moved to New York. I, th- I mean, for this first record, and I mean, a, it's like a month before nine eleven. Like all these crazy things are kind of happening, and it kind of like the band came out of a rocket. But you, I mean, I just I learned that. You know how you kind of go in a rabbit hole, and you had Wikipedia, but I needed to search. <laughs> like I didn't know that you had. In you were in another band before this, or I didn't know, um, you know, about um, I, th- I knew about Richmond, VA, and I went to school in North Carolina, so I would we would always go up to Twisters to see shows. Um, oh, hell yeah!
1: So, well, what school in North Carolina? Where I went to a school there?
0: called Elon, which okay, there might have been 10 punk kids, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were right in between Greensboro and Raleigh. Right, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What years, if you don't mind me
0: asking, were you going up to Twisters? Um, '96 to 2000. So, I think okay. I we went up there to see Strife and Warzone. I'm um, trying to think what else. Because it was only three
1: that hours. That was a good. That was a good era for hardcore Twisters. Holy shit,
0: that was amazing. Yeah, you probably saw Halo 4 open. Yes, the... of course. Oh, there was a fight. Yeah. There was a fight. Of course (laughs) And someone was like We're gonna beat up your crew Or whatever Like I was scared Out of my mind Thomas
1: (laughs) Yeah That was a wild time Like that was So Inquisition Broke up in September Of of 96
0: No Um, shit So as soon as I started school You guys broke up
1: (laughs) Yeah yeah For sure That is totally what happened Damn it And we've been around Since 91 And for the last two years That band We were touring Relentlessly Going out to Gilman Street um all the way all the way out to Berkeley and then all the way through America. We played like this place called the Allen Parkway Village, which was a Seventh so Ward of Houston, Texas. It was a community center that was trying to defend itself from being bulldozed. Native American activists, Black Panthers, you know, old Black Panthers, um, and they put on punk shows at this place that was like kind of in the beyond the projects, like Chronically impoverished, like sidewalks are breaking up, like sewage is coming out of it. We're definitely, like, like a place that you're like, wow, this is also America, and they would have punk shows. It was like a, a really weird mix of like, you know, radical punk kids, like the squatting scene at the time, and then these like entrenched people of color activists. Like, and it was mind blowing. And of course, that's where we met Propagandy you know, all these, all these nineties punk stories, but like, it was just really, those are the kinds of things Inquisition was doing. And then it took such a toll. I mean, obviously we were kind of like, not, uh, we were like starving at times, like, you know, like vehicles would break down so often and we just did not have much of a support structure. Um, and then we broke up and then it was like, the next five years of Richmond was like totally hardcore, like amazing, um, vibrant scene, and that's the, those are the shows that you went to.
0: Like you had to play Richmond, like that was the you know you saw it on all the flyers. It was like there was a show there before they went to North Carolina, or it you know it just seemed like there was a great you know center after you left. But I actually wanted to go back to early, like finding you know talking about the search and talking about you know f- you know you having there's not a system or a group of things around. Can you talk about Uh, you know, the, the late eighties or the nineties about like finding people or the record store or uh, connecting with people. Um, What was that like, you know, early on? And then how did that shape you? Because you're so close to DC and that, you know, you see all the things that are fucked up there, regardless of the political party.
1: Yeah. Well, like Richmond is like, so I'm local. Like, so grew up there. Um, Lived in like one of the outer suburbs. Uh, that was you know, I had to like ride my bike to get to the bus line to get downtown, um, to see my first shows, um, as a 15 year old. That was like 87. Uh, and I it was always, I mean, an amazing experience. Like also Grace Street where Twisters was and then became Strange Matter. Like that was that had been like the bohemian like, art student ghetto, um, to use outdated terminology, um, but, like, during the 60s. And so there were clubs there that I had actually gone to as a four-year-old on my parents' shoulders where, like, (laughs) Uncle Eddie had, like, a, you know, Almond Brothers cover band or something, you know? Like, there was music and there was, like, down there. And I'd actually been in Twisters as a four-year-old, like, that I don't remember my parents said I was really into the music.
0: That is the <laughs> okay. ultimate, like, the you could 70s. say that at a show. You're like, I've been here since up at four. Let's go. Next song. Know. You know, and <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. I think it was called the back door at that time. And you wow. could only enter
1: from the alleyway. There's a lot of enter from the alleyway stuff happening. But when I started going down there, I felt, I felt this weird, like almost subconscious sense of comfort. And, Uh, affinity for that. I mean, art galleries and speakeasies and basement shows and all that stuff that informed the more, like, orthodox, ritualized 90s DIY Richmond punk culture was already kind of in the bones of that place in the 80s before there were words for it, right? Before, like, national fanzine culture gave gave us a lexicon of what we're talking about. Like, what are the words we're using to describe this, like, this media that defies or tries its best to defy commodification, um, to defy artifice and to support, you know, I I guess like the fragility of it Mm -hmm. was always charming to me. Like, so Richmond has Guar and that was one of the first shows I saw was one of Guar's first shows. They were still figuring out their costumes. They were art students that lived in a a collective warehouse. They were making like crazy masks before they had a budget Um, it was so crazy to have like masked shirtless loincloth wearing people on roller skates with foam battle axes come up from the back of the crowd through the audience. Like I didn't know what was going to happen to me or anyone in the room. Like it was, I was a teenager, like all of that stuff was really interesting. And again, this was like way before financial resources appeared. Like, but there are, there's this other um, scene that even overlap, of course, overlaps with Guar and with all the thrash and hardcore, like the crossover bands in the mid eighties. Like there was straight edge bands that had been kind of inspired and influenced equally from DC and New York. Um, it's called four walls falling. Fuck right? yes.
0: Talk about four and walls falling for everybody real quick. Just oh, sure, no one yeah. talks four about walls, them enough.
1: They are, that's the lineage that strike anywhere. in. that is, the that's the path. Like those are, that was my first, like, other than the Guar show that felt like almost a dream that I had. This was the first like daylight, hardcore matinee, uh, 16, I think four it was one of four walls maybe first second, um, shows possibly. Anyway, it was amazing. And Taylor Steele had is like, might be like a, he might be a first generation Richmond punk. I don't know. He's a vampire. He's been around for so long. Um, he was in a bunch of bands before four walls, but four walls is really where, like anyway it was socially conscious lyrics that questioned you know racial injustice um historical untruths uh, capitalism um right it was it was incredible and obviously like i'm still yeah like <laughs> extremely influenced by full loss falling and it was they were musically ahead of their time one of the first jade tree records releases which of course later strike anywhere was on that that label like 12 15 years later um all that stuff informed us. Uh, and then me and my tiny generation of teenage punk friends, um, got this two story granary, uh, like an old barn, um, from uh, 1880s that had like, you know, kind of like a blacksmith, um, Cottage industry, it was all like historic ruins around the outskirts of the city. Um, my friend's mom rented the farmhouse a half mile in front of this barn. This barn, we just like covered in graffiti, used a little bit of like skateboard ramp construction skills to reinforce, and then we started having shows, and people would come out, carloads of. You know, older punks and you know kids and art students from VCU and all these folks would come out and have you know a party. But it was definitely like here's a punk show, and we ended up hosting a lot of like nascent straight edge bands from '88, '89 from all over Virginia. And Full Walls Falling, they came, you know, they came in strong and utilized that space and kind of showed us how how to throw shows and how to have this extremely DIY and weirdly characteristically Southern kind of situation. Right. Um, but it was absolutely beautiful. And it was cool because like without, I think without the influence of 88 straight edge and then what it did to provincial places. And I'm not actually saying Richmond is unsophisticated. It was totally sophisticated and beautiful. Always like, I would say the impressionistic cousin of DC. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but fierce enough in its identity that it was never like, Nothing was ever copycat. There was always this beautiful lens. Like, Richmond is too strong not to leave its taste and its mark
0: on the bands. It wasn't Um, just another stop.
1: Right. And, And it was also geographically interesting because, and this is like a little bit jumping later to like 91 and 92, a lot of the bands that were starting their journey across the country to get out to where I'm talking to you from, to Berkeley, um, to Gilman street, like born against. And all these bands would, would, would come down to Richmond to soak up like a, a a well-attended show with a lot of enthusiastic kids to then use that as their war chest for gas Mm -hmm. money, et cetera, to get across the country. And this is all, these are bands communicating with each other with what was called the lists. Um, And the lists eventually turned into like book your own fucking life. The zine that Maxim Rock and Roll, Mm -hmm. I believe, put out for years and years. But there was the Born Against list. And I think before that, there was a Black Flag list. And and like these were just, you know, Xerox pieces of paper with phone numbers and names and states. And you call those folks and kind of do a leapfrog cold call, right? Like, hey, I'm calling you from the Born Against list. I'm in this band. We're from Richmond. Um, Are you guys still doing shows? You know, and then they'll be like, well, no, our house got busted. But here's a person over in Lincoln, Nebraska. And they like really it was like that for for the first five years of me being in my first punk band Inquisition. It was amazing.
0: Like, can you think about that now of how much we text or email or there isn't I mean, we're speaking for the first time. Like I think I think about that a lot where you had that gumption to yes, there was letters, but you had that gumption to call and and this is my band, this is what we're doing, and that other end of the line, maybe they had a bad day, and maybe they say no, or maybe the show's full, but if there is a slot, they're going to be like, wow, this person found this list, they obviously, it took them a second, I should, we, and we're going to take a chance, and I remember shows in Vermont even, you know, it'd be like a punk sh- you know, it'd be a DIY show, and the two opening bands, like, what is this, you know, but they were coming through town, and you, you know, gave them a couple bucks for their, for their seven inch. It just, it, it, I don't know. There seemed to be like, if you got past, I'm not saying it was a gatekeeper, but it, you, you, you had to work. Once you started going to shows
1: and just hanging out on the, the odd night, there wasn't a show, um, in the vicinity or how, you know, house parties and house right. shows, like all that stuff was one web. And once you were on that web, you could find, you know, folks that would be friendly enough or, or even kind of interested in, in, challenging you to to do what you can to open up your part of the scene, your, your wherever you are in time and space. So like the that example of the barn parties that we right. threw. That was like what what we could contribute. Like local kids, some of us living far from the city, um, that had access to this crumbling ruin of a space. And in like an earlier time, it would have just been a place where like Rednecks would have a Led Zeppelin cover band, play, or not even a band, right? Because people would be like, a band can't play there, you know? And like, but we, because of punk and hardcore, it was a really different set of of rules and circumstances um, laid on top of something that, you know, was was fine. But like, generally, like, you wouldn't have had the mix of youth tribes that showed ended up showing up at this place weekend after weekend. Um, there was that you could feel that social mission that is now you know almost an, uh, such a ubiquitous part of punk and hardcore we don't even really think about it anymore. But like that, getting people together to you know listen to music and have discussions, and some people are drinking, some people are not drinking, some people are rednecks, some people are skinheads, some people
0: some, some people are vegan, some like Robert are.
1: Smith from The Cure, some people yeah. are vegan, yeah, like. <laughs> everyone likes hip hop. (laughs) Like, you know, like there's, there were some things that were really interesting, but it was no resources, no money like in this, except like people getting scraping together a few hundred dollars to make that first seven inch. Um, And yeah, you didn't know about record pressing plants. There was no internet. There were barely zines that talked about it. Um, And, and, you know, until about the the first years of the nineties, when the, the next layer, the evolution of like, okay, we have a, We can codify this culture nationally. We can give people a set of addresses for pressing plants, for printers, you know. I spent so much time, Tom, in Kinko's.
0: I can (laughs) only imagine. It was
1: almost a part of a punk scene in every city to have several people Your friend worked at at Kinko's
0: Kinko's and you got your flyers. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And your seven inch layout. Yes. And you're like all the artwork, all of the versions of stuff that never made it or, were you know, it's kind of like demos for songs. Mm-hmm. You do the demos for layouts <laughs> overnight at Kinko's with a big pot of coffee. And people would just kind of roll into Kinko's and sit with you and hang out. That was another place. Like we had, you know, all of these little places that were kind of like, I don't know, on the, the edges of the world where other people wouldn't see you had like, you started to develop like a different vision. Yeah. Um, for what was possible and where you could be and, and who you could be.
0: I think that was, that was really important to me. Like seeing those bands come through town, you know, and saying something, you know, getting to see a veil and hearing Tim talk and, and, or, you know, it was just, like you said, they left something, you know, a touring band would, but then the band would, like you said earlier, feel something from that city. And I'm just saying that's not on a message board. And I'm saying that's fine that it is now, or that's fine that there's some Twitter feed. Congratulations. I love it. We connected over the internet. That makes awesome. But, but I, I think about that and I think that can't happen again. Meaning in that, in that organic, like unknown, it can't happen again.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think and for the longest time that seemed like the only way that there, there could be to do it. Like all right. there was even when Strike Anywhere started in 99, we were still in that mode of like, okay, let's go to Kinkos. Here's the layout. There was some emailing, there was a few clunky websites, but the digital age was still it was not an essential thing. It was like a a curiosity at best. Um, you know, and but at, at that point, 10 years deep, in what we can call like the third generation of punk and hardcore, like national zines, um, national spotlight in, in a way like that, that kind of continued, um, lots of reactions, lots of pushing and pulling, um, purity, you know, people wanting to know like, you know, how DIY is enough. And now that we have all these resources, you know, what have we lost? Like that conversation was raging, everywhere in every scene. Um, and, and also the proliferation of fanzines. Like I got about four fanzines from 87 to 90. And then I got about four fanzines a week <laughs> from 90 to 99. And like that, and I looked for them. I was trying to find that shit. Like, cause they teach you so much. Like I would get a fanzine from Virginia beach, Virginia, right. Which is a bigger population. And that scene was raging and it was really different than Richmond. And that scene was like, I was It was like an hour and a half away. But reading this fanzine about the shows, the conflicts, the ideas, the record reviews, like everything that was informing that cluster of cities an hour and a half away was so different than the things that were informing Richmond at the same time. Like that was, I guess that's another thing that, and I'm sure you realize like how different and distinctive things were back then regional sounds um, scenes in the cities that were like had wildly different emphasis um, because of how unconnected, how 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 hard it was to search out, you know, folks and uh, and then but but again somewhere in the early nineties there was there were like phone trees of people. Are you guys going to the show? Okay, cool. And so kids from Roanoke, Virginia, which I'm sure you might remember. Yeah, that totally. What that was a scene that was also different and amazing. And like there would be carloads of Roanoke coming through Richmond. I'm going to pick, pick up some more people go all the way down to Virginia beach to see seven seconds. Cause that was the only stop in Virginia, but because, you know, like, so we started to have that, like those phone trees of like, but you know, I think that kind of thing even happened obviously in the mid eighties, um, you know, when American hardcore was, when all those bands were first touring nationally and everything, but, but yeah, seeing all that stuff and then seeing where we are now, it's crazy, you know, and there's the whole thing about my generation, like X, being the gatekeepers of these two worlds, like, you know, they, we understand the digital age and we understand the analog age and we had equal amounts of time in each, like, and and what a strange thing to straddle and understand that is. But I do think that, like, the way that Richmond had such a, like, again, a distinctive view um but it, the way that it, it influenced the hardcore and punk bands there was okay, so there was such a Caribbean like a Jamaican population enrichment at that time due to a bunch of factors like the election in seventy four I believe um, that Bob Marley was actually shot around <laughs> um the different political groups within jamaica um it, whatever the labor. Government won, if I'm getting this right. Um, And that meant that the bauxite or industry was nationalized. Good thing. But that meant that American aluminum companies that were colonizing the fuck out of Jamaica um, pulled out. And so many Jamaican um, aluminum professionals, chemical engineers, you know, mechanics like refinery specialists, uh, you know, that worked for Reynolds Metals in richmond virginia also moved like so we had there was there was, a, there was a and then there was an attendant other jamaican population too um that was in richmond that wow. kind of like t- took over uh there was there was a crazy amount of like murder and drug crime and this group the poison clan and all this stuff that happened in richmond bodies were everywhere like it was wild um and you know and that was also like Every day and many many years deep in Richmond, it was the murder capital. Back and forth with New Orleans, avail memorialized that in a song in the nineties. But but anyway, what I'm saying is that the reggae and music and arts and food, um, you know, world in Richmond was was influenced. Uh, you know, and even in my like growing up as a kid, life like with Jamaican families and you know jerk chicken and soccer. You know, like there's just there's a bit more of that um that flavor in life and so when i was starting to play in bands they were black and white bands there was tons of reggae influences there were tons of like older punk bands in richmond doing um how can i describe this like like rock steady and dub um mixed with hardcore which of course bad brains is also emblematic of that tendency but these were that they weren't the only ones like there was something else surging um and maybe it was an east coast thing maybe it was a dc and richmond thing um just because of demographics and population and historical accidents um but that like some of the first shows i saw were hosted in reggae clubs it almost seemed like the caribbean and african-american art and culture those populations had a, a kind of curiosity and affection if not solidarity with the punk rockers Um, and you'll, you'll also see that parallel in DC, which is probably written about more and more clearly, but yeah, it was, it was something to Richmond that really influenced. So like a lot of the early bands I was in pre-Inquisition, um, you know, had black and white membership. One of the guitar players from HR's band called Human Rights that was on SST, right? So he would flicker back and forth between leaving Bad Brains and doing this reggae band, um, And that reggae band's personnel were all in Richmond during a certain period. And that was in the late 80s. And so the guitar player of the HR band was my manager at Little Caesars Pizza. (laughs) He was like, man, HR went back to D.C. I don't have a band anymore. What are you and your little friends doing in your garage? Because he'd known that me and my little friends were doing stuff in a garage. And, you know, he was kind of like you know, let me, I just need to play. And this dude was like 27. I was 17 and we went And He just taught us so much. I mean, obviously we were playing tons of hardcore. That was way technically beyond what we could keep up with, but reggae soul and dub psychedelic music. Like, so that there were these, these kinds of connections happened. And I'm sure this is the story of like many people who just started playing in bands and doing music and connecting with people because of music. Cause it transcends a lot, transcends, Age, race, culture, and background like beautifully. Um, But it gives color.
0: It gives color to the city or the area or wherever they are. Like you said, there's all these differences. But when you dig deeper, peel back the layers, you're like, no, there's this big, you know, Jamaican population and it it affected this. And now, and like, that's what I think it makes it um, like you as a kid taking in everything you possibly can. It's such a great influence. To be able to see other things,
1: it was really it was really crucial too. Like, you know, it, this is a, you know, the, with, before the digital age. Like, you really just had your local newspaper. Um, it, you know, if you don't grow up in a particularly liberal or educationally resourced environment, you know, like lower middle class tract houses next to a swamp, um, there were so many opportunities for me not to have a diverse upbringing that would have, I didn't, you know, so many folks around me that, you know, went to public school with did not have their minds blown and their hearts opened. And I did, right? And, you know, and that's the strangest thing. Like there's there's so much personal movement through punk and hardcore and through the space where everyone has a chance to like, hey, write a zine, throw a show you have a basement or a shack, <laughs> like, you know, you know, and, and it's, it's not like, it's not like there weren't, you know, there, there was, you know, there there was definitely hierarchies. There were folks that were like old and established. There was kind of like a almost bourgeois artistic, but also kind of like fragile. And I don't know, the more I learn about the generation immediately older than me, like the second, like the, the, the folks who were art students at VCU who put on shows for all of the, you know all all the hardcore bands in the mid '80s, and including like a lot of appearances from England by G.B.H. and Broken Bones. Like the more I try and figure out like who was connected to my city before I went to my first show, and like what was going on, and what were those venues, like how did they do it? You know, because I look at I look at us with like some ease of use. Like man, the '90s hit. There were all these zines. It was the culture was like worldwide. Everyone was writing letters all the time, sending records to the mail. But like you said, like bands. Pollinate something like they stop by, they don't just leave the memory of that show or the bruises you got from that show, but you also get like the distro that they brought all that new music, all those records, all those labels you never heard of. Like the distros would then multiply and pollinate. So, yeah, everyone was just Johnny Jane apple seeding the whole thing. Um, and once you saw that, it's so democratic. I mean, it's so like profoundly. Like, like it, it destabilizes like the, the tightly controlled realms of commodification and profit-driven power, just off the table. Like in, in almost without it, without there needing to be a language to describe it. And of course, there is. <laughs> We've been talking about it, you know. But even before we were talking about what it was, it was what it was, and that's the thing that all the kids discovered when they go to the shows, when they see the tables, when they, you know. See everyone around them, and these folks that sort are of finally kind of in a space where they're free. I mean, Richmond was a really conservative, suffocating, segregated city um, up until like last week. <laughs> but but really, like all you know, especially in the '80s and '90s. So this was the only place where you could like feel real public discourse, like see folks around you like flying their freak flags, having their little crews and families screaming with music that they loved in public there's that catharsis about it the, you know it's a ritual it's the way people are taught to behave at a hardcore show right YouTube like all that stuff you know but like what it really is you can't fake it like to some point where you really you mean that shit and it is ugly and embarrassing and beautiful and it's public <laughs> and you're just screaming along or jumping off this you know what I mean like that thing really moves me and I think it moves everybody and that's another one of the pieces of this culture that's not just like a music style, not just like a way people look when they're young and feel crazy. It's something psychological that is rooted in freedom and is rooted in something more real than the world we all have to fucking navigate.
0: Right. Outside of it. That's what I felt about when, when people kind of take it for a minute and the mainstream media might take it for a second and use it, meaning the genre or a word or a, a feel or a look, and kind of cast it aside when it's over. When I just, I was kind of ride or die. Like, this is what I listen to. This is what I love. And yes, there'll be other things I'll listen to. But the ethos kind of went, kept going. And... I, I just that never went away and I feel like there were certain I think times where it was just used. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do, no, you, do you get what I mean? Like it was kind of the, the ethos of DIY and I'm not saying people can make money, but it just seemed like it was it was uh the, it was a commodity and then left aside.
1: I, I think that also there's there's some people come into it and they just feel like they just don't know how deep it, it can go and it's meant to go and be um, because not many things are like that in life. And like when you see that, oh, we're not just, this isn't just like a, like a little sub economy of, of small bands. And, you know, this isn't just like um, some kind of like weird uh, cul-de-sac of art and, and, and Distributing it, like when you see that this is really about the people it affects and the movement that it builds, um, you know, because I do think they're they're interwoven, like the psychological part that I guess hardcore speaks to pretty much a lot, um, and then the values, the ideas um, of punk, like together, like one of each of them drives the other, like each of them is the backbone and the nourishment. For, for that. And so that's no, another thing that I've kind of stumbled across as I, as I approach 50, <laughs> like realize that I'm still doing this and in this, and there's like, you know, and it, you can kind of stretch out a little bit and think about what it felt to you when you were at your most vulnerable moment, like that sense of community and connection, even that sense of like challenging yourself, challenging um, your fears and, and challenging your laziness and all that stuff. It's like incredibly important. And there's, there's nothing that really has that like bundled effect the way that punk and hardcore do. There are other things you can find in the world, other ideas, belief systems, philosophies, lifestyles that can, that can take you, you know, in one or two of those directions. Um, there's a kind of weird therapeutic beauty to the way that punk and hardcore react and interplay off of each other. That is, and something I'm discovering and it's personally good. And also I think for the community and the way we're looking at the world now and all of the possibilities of, you know, poisoning yourself, softening your mind, like with doom scrolling and quarantine and, you know, seeing all the beautiful changes in the physical world that needed to happen forever, like finally happening. Like it's, it's a wonderful thing, but yeah, I, I think there's almost like a critical thinking reasoning, um, therapeutic element to punk. I think it helps. Like, I mean, I know it's not like at times it, it's wonderfully self-effacing about how not cerebral that it is. You know, like there's there's an outsized amount of punk songs that celebrate stupidity, right? But it's a kind of benevolent stupidity. It's a kind of like you know because we live in a world where like the the, the white hot individual the egotism the narcissism is is like this this fire whirlwind like cutting across our collective psychology our collective hearts right i mean our current Mm -hmm. president is is an amazing avatar of this of this illness right but this is like this is all this is just an american and a western issue of this like virus of like kind of false empowered um hyper individualism and Punk always has a really nice way of knocking that down, criticizing it, and then finding what is truly important about these vulnerabilities, these these strengths. Um, almost like whittling away at identity itself, it, especially because most of identity are just conditions. It's not real, and and so those are those are some of the. Like, I'm chewing on <laughs> with punk now, and how it helps as you get older.
0: And I was just thinking about that around hardcore and and punk in the late '90s or early 2000s. It seemed like a lot was written about the '80s. There's plenty of stuff about DC. There's plenty of books and docs about Fugazi, and you know which is great. And then there's a lot of stuff in the mid 2000s because it got pop. I feel like that era and maybe your beginning and your ending of that band hasn't been talked about enough. Do you think about that? Like I feel like there's it remember we didn't have the online wasn't that awesome yet. There was things that do you right. think that enough of enough has been said about that era and does more need to be uh I don't know, maybe found <laughs> in someone's sock drawer from that era because I don't think it's I don't think it's told enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also think that like, it was a transition, like that almost the whole time was a transition. Um, like another reshuffling, um, looking at structures that worked. Um, and you know, people having, it was so much debate, beautiful debate constantly. Um, and we were having, you know, like, obviously, anti racist action, sharp skins, like the autonomen in Europe. So some of the first, while well falling, bands that I knew that went to Europe had come back and talked about this mystical place where there was completely free, taken, repurposed, taken under old warehouses and old buildings, squats. But the squats weren't these... Dirty places that were scary. Um, uh, some of them had aspects of that, but mainly they were like taken over by, you know, black and red, um, anarcho-communists, and they had been fought against for a couple of years. Then the government just said, "Well, okay, fuck it," and now there were like, you know, free healthcare clinics and libraries and punk shows and cinema and um, places where impoverished populations from all over europe could get literacy education um and i'm speaking mainly about roma and Sinti people um and there were all these different social work programs woven into these extremely apocalyptic punk looking places and part of me once i got there in 2001 um, um first european tour I, I, I saw like a tiny reflection of the barn <laughs> like that when I was a teenager that that weird greenery but like there was no way I didn't know anything about that like the language of it the the politics put in practice and so see naturally like politics is just it's, it's like a photograph chasing a moment it's not the moment and I I know I've been trying to write about that for my whole life. But like seeing when you put something in practice and you get on the ground with it, it naturally has to become organic. It has to change. It has to be a part of like the, the lived life of a community and not just like, not the, not the ideological imposition placed over top. And that was another thing about punk. That's always been challenging like politics itself. Like what we're looking at, like this, this mechanism, it naturally takes power out of people's hands regardless of what it says it, it is, you know, like what it advertises. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess that's another thing about the, that weird missing period the 86 to 96 period, um, is that there were all these sounds flickering around, like, and there was all this, but there, I think a lot of people had thought punk and hardcore had both finally reached their natural end. Um, in fact, almost everything I was reading while well, I was just getting into it...
0: said it was over? Like,
1: well, it was said it was over. Like, it's been a good one. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's move on. You're like, wait
0: like, a minute. So
1: yeah, right. Like, it's only 87, guys. You know, Black Flag's last tour. Like, the month before I started going downtown and seeing shows, Black Flag had come back for what would have been their last Richmond show. So you could feel the afterglow there was basically a lot of afterglow is what I walked into me and my whole generation of punk and hardcore kids, like the afterglow of all these shows that we had just been slightly too young to go see. Um, but even the members of those bands had gone on to do something else. There was a lot of progressive stuff and like casting about um, for the, not the next sound in a way that that sounds like, but more like what is going to give us that feeling again? What's going to make, you know, cause the, the world, the world runs ahead of you. And like, so if discharge like in 82 was like everything anyone needed to know, like by the time you get to 87, it's like, that's not all that we need to know. And like that, that sound was cool for, you know, cause we were worried about nuclear Armageddon and Thatcher and we still have those fucking problems. But guess what? There's nine more problems on top of that. There's a structure <laughs> underneath that. Like, so that's what I'm saying. Like, so that's why, I mean, I needed punk, <laughs> you know, I needed it in 87 to keep going. I was like, come on guys, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, but I think everybody from those generations were, were moving into, and that's where you get the beautiful moments like revolution summer in DC, um, emotional, hardcore, um, all these variants, all these different ideas kind of coming out. This was, there was a time of expansion. Um, and I don't know, I think all that stuff about punk and hardcore is really interesting because it reacts to itself. Um, it's driven by, by this need to find what's real. And it personal, you know, even beyond musicians and people writing songs, it has to do with the people participating in it, um, calling themselves in their bullshit and, and continually evolving, like not just saying in one spot and being like, here we are. i it's that, in that punk itself does that, right? Like it wasn't just saying like, here's the sound, anything that happens after this is over anything that happened before this was leading up to this, right? Like it does not subscribe to that linear machinery. Um, and I thought that much it was so beautiful and moving before I could come up with words to describe it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's all there and it's all real before we make the words to describe it.
0: I love that. And I think you did mention Revolution Summer, and um, it does it does make sense. I, I would love to know when did you hear the when did you hear the word emo or emo core, and what were your thoughts initially? Interesting. So, um, I had a good friend, still doing named Max, who came down from DC,
1: in um, right right about the time we were doing those barn parties, and he was so into Discord and all of that, and of course we were too. Um, but, but our view of Discord was kind of like, yeah, Minor Threat, Dagnasty, maybe, maybe Grey Matter. And he was like, no, last week, Soulside, this band called Fugazi just dropped their their first, you know, seven songs. Like, and we were like, holy shit. So the tape trading at the lunch table got real epic. <laughs> like, and, uh, and you could, it was cassette tapes, was people dubbing records to cassette tapes. Um, and and, you know, it was really, I didn't even hear of a distro until like three years after that. Um, but this was the, the kind of like, so Richmond still had a lot of violence. Um, and it was almost like we jumped over Embrace, Righteous Spring, um, the early verbal assault, like later they came to Richmond. But it was like, it was almost like a push and pull between like, like, are we just going to go straight from like thrash, hardcore uh, like eighty-two style violence to like, um, I don't know, like like and yet more more like hardcore that's not talking about violence or physicality. Um, like so, this little spot in the middle, right, which is really beautiful, um, was kind of called in a weird self-effacing, but kind of like joyful way, like emo. Um, so that is the way that emo first entered into my my mind, and it was more like not a genre like not a thing that people said was a thing <laughs> but more like these bands are not like super tough and they're not super spiky and they're not <clears throat> wearing sportswear and talking about Hare krishna so they're somewhere else what is it and i mean that's it's kind of what like ian mccoy even talks about now with embrace and great matter right spring that like you know it was we're going to go back to emotions we're going to go back to like because the, the real toughness is in handling these difficult, complex events in your life, trauma, loss, because that is really underneath all of the other social and political conflicts that we were talking about in our previous dance. So, I mean, I always believed that like, going to that root, that human root of experiences and pain and mental health is – is the, the part is the missing part of how we have to describe all the politics, all the social issues, right? They boil down to people not being able to handle pain and not being able to communicate about pain. So I mean once again, you know, like and, and it wasn't just happening in DC, let me be real, who's could do? We're all over that shit. There's so many bands, I don't even know about that we're doing this because they had already they'd already built hardcore. They'd already started it, crushed it, and they were like, this is good, but this isn't enough. And a lot of people are getting it wrong or they're just staying at this one bus stop and they're not riding along with us the rest of the way. And this was the rest of the way. So all of a sudden, I was like, holy shit. Like, so, but, but it was still so firmly in the punk world and DIY. Like, and so I never even thought, even the later Subhumans records, like everybody was getting reflective at the same time and the music got progressive. A little more spacious, slowed down a touch. There's even a song by the Faith called "Slow Down." <laughs> like they were they were spelling it out for us, like you know. But it was still, it was still revolutionary, like in the best sense of the word. In fact, and it was going deeper on all the things that the previous bands heavier, monolithic hardcore that we all still love and we all still need. <laughs> so that was the issue. Is everyone was throwing every baby out with every every new bathwater. So people were like, yeah, that old shit is like macho and toxic and fuck that. That was never punk. Okay. All right. So, so these five bands are now the only thing that's really like, you would have those moments, right? That was one thing about the eighties and nineties that I don't miss. (laughs) Like, is that everyone was, it it wasn't like a purity test necessarily. It was like this, you just don't want to be, you don't want to be caught blindsided by believing in something that later turns into shit. And I think the reason why people had that feeling is because of (laughs) many, many great hardcore bands turned into mediocre metal bands. And I don't even mean speed metal or thrash. I mean like hair metal, you know, like, or, or attempts at just rock and roll. Like, like they were on to something beautiful and like amazing and, and dangerous and honest. And then they just said, okay, cool. We did that. Now we're or whatever the motivation was, but I think because everyone was getting so burnt by, all these transformations that were happening with bands that like you wanted to find a completely new and safe house where you could be like, okay, these guys aren't going to sell out. These guys aren't going to make, you know, like my investment in that music and this movement isn't going to be betrayed because they already know about that thing that happened. Right? Right? Like, I I guess that's a part of it. I'm not explaining it well, but no, I get it because
0: I, I think post hardcore falls into that as well. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't emo, but it was just like, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was close to hardcore, but like you said, introspective or a little bit more thinking versus hit you over the head.
1: And something, I guess, like just to to follow up on the, on the, on your question about emo. So like later, but not that much later, like 93 or four, like And I don't even know if this was just us being like provincial and like picking up on some language that no one else was using or using it wrong, whatever. (laughs) Like, But like the kind of like musically complex, emotional um, pop punk stuff was also called emo. So like Sam I Am's first couple albums, like there was this world of that also being emo, um, unrelated to the other things that were called emo five years before. And then of course, five years after that, it probably, we could say it became like a full-fledged genre um, with its own labels, right? And its completely own stylistic stuff that was borrowed and reapplied um, from other stuff that still wasn't the same emo or emotional hardcore that had, like, the, those iterations didn't really apply to that. And there was a chaotic... Really, really beautiful discordant styles of commercial hardcore that became screamo, and like you know, and then you get like the kind of mainstreaming of it, you know, because you're always going to get. Um, it's almost like the the secret A and R agent demon in all of culture. It's not even a person anymore. It's just like this spotlight that comes out over top of something that was handcrafted and built through all these people's belief. And then all of a sudden, like it just blows up, and everything's gonna have that moment, right? Um, it was like a fever, like an infection, so the body has to, has to. But, but so then that happens, and then the whole like, <clears throat> philosophy of what emo originally was supposed to mean, or even like it was kind of a backhanded, a backhanded adjective that wasn't even meant to say post-hardcore punk. Or post hardcore, hardcore, <laughs> like, or whatever the actual like lineage of the music is. Emo is just kind of a, a way to just snarkily but affectionately at the same time describe it. Originally, that's how that abbreviation was used. And so then finally, you get to bands may not have these roots, may not understand. But I mean, just there's so much. They're only they're only picking from a few strands, and then it turns into kind of like a like you broke my heart, like like Trojan horse for misogyny, (laughs) like, like really terrible, terrible, terrible genre that went on for a long fucking time that like did not lead anyone anywhere good and just gave people this, this like kind of whiny, emotionally infantile way of, talking about how they want to kill their girlfriends or whatever, you know, like it just became like this, like a lot of things, it became a horror story. (laughs) And like, I'm not saying it was all like that, but I do think that like, it's, it's really, it's led us down some dark and stupid paths, you know, of course.
0: That are are definitely Um, still around. And I think what you said earlier about it was, it started as a snark, but also as a compliment kind of at the same time, it, it led to it just being a joke or a snicker. And I hope, you know, I think it's coming back around, but I feel like the way that, you know, emo and hardcore, I mean, I'm sure you played tons of shows with all different genres of music, but it seemed like there was a moment where you all played together and then it was separate. Like, it was like, oh no, we're going on this, you know, tour that's just these bands or just this sound. And I feel like, like you said earlier, where things kind of go back and forth, it seemed like... It, it it was in that bad place for longer than I thought it would be.
1: <laughs> the bad exactly. The bad place is a good way to put it. You know, and I don't even know if this is an indictment of particular bands or individuals. It's like it's like this weird tendency that, that occurs where like some band gets popular and they, they 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 lost the plot. Like they just didn't have all of the elements together but and they couldn't control their popularity. Whatever happened, happened. And then the folks take that ball and run with it. Um, but it's a very incomplete, very incomplete um artistic product and and then it but by its very nature it's just going to get worse you're just going to get this feedback loop right where you know the one band's popular song happens to be their least thoughtful song about lost love and then the band that minds that band only thinks it's about that one song that one unfortunately like most superficial, kind of hateful uh, broken hearted emo love song, right, and then so you just get people mining money less and less content and putting more and more you know like <clears throat> operatic theatrics over top of instead of it's supposed to be the opposite so it went from like like the most vulnerable like this isn't performance, this is you you are this is your moment of courage and honesty, like that's the brute force of hardcore coming through where like you know, this is all we've got. Here you are. Let's talk about your pain. Then it moves into like somehow from there to like a theater of (laughs) misogynistic whiny like stuff that then turns into just like, you know, the most unreal like displays of quote emotion unquote ever possible. (laughs) And like, you're like, fuck, how did we get from something that was supposed to be completely real with its own sets of checks and balances to this completely unchecked and unhealthy. It was totally un- unhealthy
0: thing. I love that you brought that up about being unchecked because it just seemed like it was everyone running, the money was flowing in, whatever it was, it just like no one was like checking each other. It was just like, oh fuck. I'm gonna sign this band. I'm gonna go on this tour, I'm gonna do this, this it just and it was like, Wow. Like, did we forget? Like we do, I I just it seemed like I mean, I was at a label at the time and I mean, it was just like running.
1: Yeah, man. There's so many different things happening there that like, again, it's not, it's not necessarily, there's not some great mustache twisting exploiter devil signing contracts (laughs) and like perverting the culture. I think there are a lot of people that, I mean, it's a distraction when you have to be reminded that something is actually sacred. You got to take your time and take a risk. And that's stuff is distracting and, and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have like a, a lot of good returns all the time that can be, that can be measured across a fiscal year, <laughs> like, right. So if, but like, so that's, that's, so if you can take something that's like, um, you know, a, a cultural idea, a musical and cultural idea that looks like it's one thing, but really can't be bothered to take the time to be the thing, that it says it is, or thinks it is. That's the issue. As I think people thought they were really, they were really bringing it, but like the, just the mechanics of it are so theatrical and superficial and painful that like it's, you know, there was no way that they were going to be able to um, on the promise of what the emotional hardcore legacy was meant to be and could only be. So I I don't know if it's going to end up being the most forgettable period of music in, in history um and i don't really think it should be but it's definitely there's a bit more of a cautionary tale to it um and but there's cautionary tales all over the place again back to the anarcho-punk bands turning into hair metal bands and like situation that you know um i think there was a bit of that with oi bands and other kinds of early punk bands getting into the new wave but honestly. I think most of that stuff fucking rules and I don't know if that's just because that's the earliest time that bands sold out and hurt people's feelings and then but actually the musical <laughs> content is, is interesting and decent or if that's just the way history's gonna look at all of these transformations. I don't know. I may not be I may not live long enough to know.
0: Well right, Thomas, but why does okay, if punk if someone says punk they they might say green day. Yes, Green Day, you know, Gilman Street, but they might say blank. They might say strike anywhere. They might say, you know,, uh, you know, no effects or whatever it is. It just seems like if you say, emo they're gonna say the four bands that we all know people are gonna say instead of maybe mentioning rights of spring or maybe mentioning uh the full history or even bands today there's bands you know from the 2009 onwards that you know were actually skipped over the weird era and actually figured out bands from the late 90s like they kind of skipped a step which i thought was interesting i love
1: that yes um i mean however however they fit into what we're talking about like we toured with title fight maybe yes. 10 years ago when they were first and i was like this is what always should have happened <laughs> like you know it was like we played after them and you know, usually usually when you're with a bunch of bands like that band before right before you is the band you miss because you need to like hydrate stretch write a set list to get your mind right about what's about to happen you know and um we wouldn't do that. We were just like, fuck it. <laughs> Texting each other, like get out of that restaurant. Title fight is about to play. Like it was fucking real. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, and again, I, I, the things that I have, that have affected me from punk and hardcore and love of this music and more than music over the years are still just the things that I, I ran into. So I have an incomplete knowledge, incomplete catalog. I don't even know if it's useful to, to become a musicologist about this shit. I do think that knowing about the roots, of of is it, always rewarding it's not like like an academic obligation right? right it's just a rewarding thing to do but so however title fight got to what they were doing is what i actually wanted from emotional hardcore the entire time it was doing something i didn't like it was like wow this is the shit like you know um because it kind of reminded me i guess of like right the years after 88 which probably like, so it was almost like youth that today put the spell over the entire national hardcore culture, um, which was kind of awesome and brought in a lot of new kids, a lot of new suburban folk felt comfortable because they didn't have to, I don't know. One, I, I still think, I still go back to straight edge in all the different eras of it and think that it's an underrated movement because despite the violence and the fashion and the weirdness of almost every, every iteration of it. Like the idea... So look, man, you're in the 80s and you're either like a punk and you've got to drink beer and like wear boots and like maybe other things, but definitely boots and beer are what you're doing. And then, or you're like on a football team or another kind of youth tribe, but you're always drinking and you're always like, it's just all this like, you're not thinking about it and you're in the footsteps of your parents, especially if you're from like a working class environment, right? Like there's no way to look at like collective political empowerment unless you look at economics. And you've got to look at the pathologies of what happened to people devastated by being working class to see everyone is an addict. Everyone is drinking. Everyone is on their way to something horrible. Um, the more I look back on like what the choices were for all of us growing up, trying to self-actualize, um, the thing, I mean, there's something so revolutionary about like, hey, you don't, it actually breaks you away from all of the previous generation's pathologies. You know, I mean, I know there's now like kids growing up to sober parents and, you know, it's through all the different ways people can become sober and recover. And that's awesome. But I don't, I don't remember knowing anything about that back in the day. So I do think, even though I've never been straight edge, like having that tool in the toolbox to, to to question that automatic behavior is, is amazing. Like automatic behaviors, like condition your your identity and it becomes so harmful and so embedded as like a deep layer, right? And like, so having this thing where you can question your drinking culture or, you know, addiction and, it, you know, and that just becomes this beautiful way of being honest with yourself at a pretty early, early, you know, and pivotal time. So anyway, that's my little essay about strategy. Like I just always feel like that comes back to like the way that really good true emotional hardcore comes back great political punk comes back like all of the best versions of all the eras that's what's cool about the digital age i feel now they're all back like there's like a world and a community and overlapping communities for all of these uh, I guess we can say traditions, <laughs> musical cultures. Like it is beautiful, but I definitely love seeing straight edge come back whenever it does, especially if it's like compassionate and political and feminist and, you know, but even if it's not that, if it's just about like drinking and smoking is dumb, that's still
0: really useful.
1: and yes. Important
0: to people. Yes. Um, and uh, two more things real quickly was one about just, you've, you know, you've talked about issues. You've, that's been a huge catalyst for you in this last four years. Every 24 hours, we have a new crisis, a new um, a new issue. I haven't felt this stressed out or this anxious um, about things. And being someone that's speaking about it and thinking about it and putting lyrics down about it, how have you stayed focused or been able to uh, compartmentalize? And what would you say to someone, you know, battling in this same anxiety or or trying to deal with it?
1: Yeah, man, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have, I'm still in it, like, with you. Like,
0: I don't have, like, a... That's your answer. You're in it with us. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like, but I think, I think, I think it's definitely about being, like, recognizing that you're in this moment. You're not distant from this historical moment, from the outrage, from your pain. Like, and it's, you know, if you have to take little bites of it at a time, it's important, but don't look away. Like, and, and know that people are right beside you also. Struggling with it and like, you know, feeling powerless, feeling, you know, f- feeling removed from it um, or, or feeling ineffective. You know, it's like everyone is feeling that, right? And we're all together like stumbling through it, trying to find the courage, you know, to like stand up and be real and be real with ourselves even when it's painful. And all of that is, it, it's again, it's a part of like what growing up in punk and hardcore have, have taught me too that like, you know, there's like, nothing is going to be easy. Right. And, you know, and, but you should never let anything become normalized. Like that is, that is a legacy of this movement is that we can continue to see clearly, you know, even with insane amounts of propaganda. I mean, it's, it, it, obviously like we could never predict the digital age and the manipulation of media and the manipulation of consent to go as deep and as quickly as it did. I was just thinking about that movie seven years ago with Joaquin Phoenix called her Mm -hmm. Spike Jonze movie. And it's about an AI, you know, of course what it's about. And at the end, the AI is just like reconstruct philosophers and then go to another universe. There's just like fucking humanity. We can't do this anymore. Even though we were, we were built to help you guys out. Like it's really interesting. Like, I don't know somehow like, but you see like things that were just speculative science fiction are now not only happening, but, but kind of happening in the worst way. <laughs> like,
0: it's um, worse than the book. You know, it's worse than the movie.
1: It's worse than the movie. <laughs> like, but yeah, I, I guess there's so much beauty. Like One thing I think about, it's almost like a meditation, right? You've got to find, you've got to find these like, kind of thought experiment meditations to hold on to. Um, and that's what art is. We were like, painting on cave walls and making music with bones to describe something invisible, but incredibly real like a million years ago, and now we're still doing it. And so, one thing that I do is I think about my hometown, I think about Richmond and the monuments, and the way they look now, the colors, the removed racist warriors, just these plinths encircled grass with votive candles, memorials to people slain by police, like speakers and PA set up, and like all these years that never happened until last month, right? And my whole life was spent, you know, in a city, shadowed by these monuments, never thought that, like, that you know something's missing, but what is that thing that is missing? You're, wow, this is it. This is what, now we're people again. Now we're actually in the present for the first time. The city is now not just having this landscape that is there to oppress us and to to silence us, but there are colors, there are memorials, there are, like... There are kids doing ballet. (laughs) There's, you know, dances and there's protests and there's places to be angry and there's places to heal. That's what the future is going to look like. It's already happening and unfolding, but you just like you have to remember that's where we're going to land. We're going to reclaim these spaces from systemic racism, from dishonest histories. And, you know, it's going to free the people who think they're on the other side, too. That's the thing. Like, the people who have been manipulated their whole lives to defend the racist police system to defend Confederate monuments. You know, like they are also just as powerless and fucked up, like you know, mentally. And they've been promised. I feel like they've been promised something that has not been delivered by America, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like this is the way we get free: is to get all of these by design manipulations of our environment pulled back down, given color and life, and so that we can have one of those echo off of them.
0: I love that, and um, I so, I know. Yeah. I think yeah. about it too. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we didn't talk a lot about the music, um, but I felt like you've done that a lot, or you've talked about that. But I do want to say, "Nightmares of the West." Um, not being able to the new EP that just came out. Not being able to tour, which is where we've mostly talked. You know, our most of our our discussions been about being together and scenes and being. What has that changed? Um, even on top of you guys, you guys doing limited touring based on you know your family life and things. What has changed um, for for you guys with not being able to tour and make that connection?
1: I was just talking with Mark, a guitar player, um, yesterday about this. He was talking to Eric the day before about it. Like we've just been on this kind of like, I mean, we're so excited. That we're so happy that we decided to let, to release the record and that people wanted to help us do that. And Brian recorded it a year ago. And like we finished off the backing vocals in August of last year. Like this whole like story of getting to yesterday to the release day is way more poignant for us now than I remember it being in any other time, any other recording cycle. (laughs) Like it's weird because we can't do anything. We can't even be together, right? Like me and my bandmates can't even like meet up in Germany at, You know, at our favorite little spot before, you know, on the day before the tour starts, and 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 talk and like drink and laugh and like have these debriefs where we talk about the record and how it feels now, like all that weird stuff that you you imagine every band does. Like, you know, um, we can't have that. It's so strange. It's like this thing happened and got put out into the world, and then we're also just witnessing it and watching it too, um, without any ability to. You know, when you play the songs live, that's when they're alive. Is the way we feel. You know, like that's the thing where they're living, living document. Can't touch it. You know, like it's just this. Again, it's one of those. It's it's one of those pieces of of life where it's not in the material world. Like it's just something else that like pushes the underneath. So we we are gonna have to wait for a year or more to play the songs. We are. I imagine the amount of energy and build up anticipation that just for us, honestly, just getting into our rehearsal space in Richmond, this, this skate park, skate ramp, kind of DIY bike, <laughs> where we have our space, like our walls, kind of broken window unit, air conditioner, like all the, all the things you'd imagine, like just getting an in there and playing the songs would be, like You know, and I feel like we do a good job of not taking this for granted. Like as a band, we always check in over the years and make sure we're not burning ourselves out or doing things we don't believe in. Um, and so, yeah, even with that, I feel like we could have never known the sort of, uh, the the ache of not being able to do it um, yet. And so again, I think we're grateful that the songs are in the world, like, but it's so weird to not... And I know that we're about to go play them for our friends and audiences and supporters and, you know, all those different things, like going to new places, going to old places, like chopping it up with friends about like this record versus that record. Like, Howard, what's up? How are you? Like it's the socialization of it, that family, the global family that we've been a tiny bit cultivating, you know, and like been lucky to be a part of really. So that's the thing. You definitely feel more removed and distant from it, even though it's a thing that you need desperately to feel close to the world. You know, you write the songs as a way to touch the world, as a way to touch history, um, and, and share these feelings. Anyway, that's, that's what we're missing for sure. It is real hard. And it's also kind of like, and ridiculous to talk about it too. Cause like we're all healthy, you know, like, um, most of us are employed. Um, other folks are, you know, kind of still holding on, but like, spouses and partners are employed like we're doing okay in the pandemic um right now and so to say you know oh it sucks we can't go back on tour and play these new songs seems a little spoiled (laughs) like you know so i mean only only in the context of like you asked me that question i'm not giving you this but i wouldn't really necessarily want to like say Check out how shitty my life is because I'm in this punk band that released a record and <laughs> oh shit, I can't play any songs. That definitely, yeah, but man, I, I miss it. And I, I, it's, it's, it's strange too that we recorded this shit like a year ago with Brian, wrote the song sometimes a year before that and weirdly, like they're more true now than they were then which is an odd thing to say. Like there's something, I don't know how to describe it. You know, if you're from, a city like Richmond, you're gonna write a song about pulling down the monuments at some point in your life. Right? <laughs> I just happen to write it like and it just came out yesterday and yeah. <laughs> Those are things we're dealing with too. Like I mean that just that just feels so crazy. Like I never thought I'd see that in my life. And like I mentioned before, it's it's something that I hold on to as a meditation now.
0: I absolutely love that, like it just it it was it was needed, and you didn't even know it, like you did it before uh, i don't know i I believe in that cosmic shit, like what you were doing a year ago in the studio like I, I i don't know it's not like you knew, but it you it's it's needed now, and it's here
1: It's kind of like everybody if you listen closely enough to the world, you can see what's coming, see what needs to be coming, and you can feel changes underneath you. Like that's I mean that's the reason we have philosophy, probably even the reason we have religion is because we're like reaching out with our minds and we're trying to find a way to make it into an analog tool Hard animations. Of course we can by definition. So going taking a walk through the city without headphones just with your mind and looking around like, you know, it's all of this stuff is underneath everything else. Like, you know, the, when you get to like the quantum level of what time and space really are, they kind of dissolve. <laughs> like, and, so there's, there's that. I mean, there's, there's the idea that there's some physics behind this shit now where, yeah, it's cosmic and feels crazy to talk about, but just because our language hasn't evolved well yet to talk about it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. Um, but yeah, you yeah, know, also punk songs talk about like, you know, to talk about, like, states of mind and, and moments of, like, extending your senses, whether it's, like, love or anger, taking on a whole system, taking on a whole view of history, like, it empowers, like, turbocharges emotions, turbocharges states of mind, and I think it really brings it to its natural level, because the world and conditions and our various systems try to keep us really subdued. So the thing that we think we're feeling when we feel it is not, you, you, it's almost like we need aids to feel. Like, that's why we have art. That's why we have these, especially as our art forms get more and more um, desperate and they become therapeutic survival mechanisms. Um, that's why it feels the way it feels. So, yeah, man, I just it, walking around the city, looking at everything, feeling it, like my hometown, all the changes, all the things that have not changed, writing the, the lyrics of the bells, and then having that have a completely I mean not like opposite meaning but a deeper meaning that I could not have predicted like all that stuff is I mean I think that's just what happens when you write songs like and and, and you write like from your heart about events and about feelings so yeah (laughs) it's often been strange my parents and I went over the song like because I sent them I had to send them a record they're like almost eighty. And like I still think they're probably like, "What is our son doing with his life?" <laughs> but no, but they were. They wanted. They loved the. They were really into the references to places and historic events in Richmond and that. song. I think they really, they really felt it and got it because, because contrary to like popular belief, there are a lot of folks, old people in the South, um, who no doubt benefited from all the segregation, Jim Crow, all the oppression, who have been sick of it their hearts for so long and seeing these events unfold mass mobilizations like of honesty finally and and liberty like you know moves them so and i would even say there's conservative old people in the south who are happy to see this thing coming but anyway that's another conversation but but yeah I i i i love the fact that we have the songs and that they can help relate to the moment and, and maybe speak beyond it and then we'll just see what happens when people sing along in a year and a half or less
0: <laughs> yes well Thomas thank you um, I just wanted to, I just want to say that I've done 170 plus episodes of this and I've learned a lot and more than most talking to you and I really appreciate your time and your knowledge and the appreciation of the history. And I don't know, I just, I, I'm really, really happy um, that you're able to talk and just really appreciate that your, your knowledge on all this.
1: Oh, me too. Thanks so much. And um, I look forward to hearing it and uh, to hearing more of your work. Thank you for doing this. It's amazing. Right.